Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This CME activity titled, Lung Cancer Screening and Treatment of Early Stage, is brought to you by the American College of Chest Physicians and supported by an independent educational grant from AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals, an educational grant from Genentech, a member of the Roche Group, and an independent medical education grant from Merck Sharp and Dome Corporation. Before starting this activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Good afternoon or evening, depending upon which time zone you're in. My name is Eric Edel. I'm a pulmonary and critical care physician at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And I'm honored to be here with my co-chair, Septimio Murgu from the University of Chicago. It's a real honor for us to have you join us in this first of five webinars on non-small cell lung cancer. Joining us today are Drs. Nicole Tanner from the, University, from the Medical University of South Carolina, Kimberly Silvertson from the University of Chicago, Dr. Jenny Reisenauer from the Mayo Clinic, and Dr. Andreas Rimner from Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York. Dr. Tanner, I'll turn the first presentation over to you. So I'm Nicole Tanner. I'm a professor of medicine at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston. I also have a joint appointment at the Ralph H. Johnson VA. So these are the two questions that have come up. Are there, is there an added value of increasing quit rates to a screening program? And what are the best methods for integrating smoking cessation? And so to address that first question, our group uh, published back in 2016, 2016 um, and what we really wanted to see was it within that national lung screening trial participants and those who had quit smoking, at what point in how many years did we actually get that same mortality benefit in absence of doing LDCT? And so when you look at the chest X-ray arm and the spiral CT arm, you can see that former smokers or people who had quit smoking uh, that were abstinent for seven years had achieved that same 20% mortality reduction without getting an LDCT. Now, if you combine this with uh, doing an LDCT, you get this maximum benefit of a 38% mortality reduction. So with each additional year of smoking abstinence, there was a reduction in lung cancer-related death by 6%. Uh, and in this increased to 9% when combined with LDCT. So I think this is the data that shows us that doing both uh, is really important. We in our group wanted to see what the amount of tobacco dependence would be that predicts a higher lung cancer and mortality rates uh, in the National Lung Screening Trial. And so we did a secondary data analysis of the Akron arm of the NLST. This was a sub subset of um, centers that were participating in the National Lung Screening Trial where they did detailed smoking questionnaires. Um, and uh, what, we, what was found was that um, more of the people participating in lung cancer screening were uh, of a higher nicotine dependence than the average U.S. smoker. And not surprisingly, the more dependent, the less likely the individuals were to quit smoking uh, and more likely to die of lung cancers. Another question we wanted to know is, does type of cigarette matter? Um, and so this was a trial that we had published in uh, JAMA Internal Medicine, where we again looked at the NLST Akron data set and compared the different types of cigarettes and again looked at lung cancer incidence, mortality, and all-cause. And so what we found is that all cigarettes are bad, and I need to highlight that. All cigarettes are bad. 
Um, but unfiltered cigarettes are the worst. And so then the last question that we have asked, and this has been submitted pu for publication, is what are the predictors of smoker smoking cessation? And so again, we looked back and we wanted to see what was going to tell us if someone was more or less likely to quit smoking. Um, and I think this really just speaks to an area for improvement, right? So of the people who were actively smoking at the time of enrollment in lung cancer screening, over 73% received no pharmacologic treatment. And what we do know is that getting medicines like nicotine replacement therapy really increases the, the um, chances of, of trying to quit and being successful. Uh, those who continue to smoke, uh, females, unmarried, and those with a less than a college education, uh, and those with a higher dependence, again, time to first cigarette, who received dual therapy had the highest likelihood of a quit attempt. And that's really important um, as we talk about how we're going to talk to patients. Dr. Tanner, that was outstanding. Excellent job. Thank you very much. So, Mrs. Sievertson. Hi, I'm Kimberly Sievertson. I'm a nurse practitioner at the University of Chicago. I work in our interventional pulmonary program. and I'm also a coordinator for our lung cancer screening program. As we talk about shared decision-making and lung cancer screening, the components, we spend a lot of time talking about the, the eligibility and the discussion of the risks and benefits. It's important to know that there are other things that you should be covering in that shared decision-making visit. And one of those is counseling on the importance of adherence. Um, so this is definitely not a one-and-done scan. We see that a lot in patients who have had one negative screen and do not want to come back for another one or fall off the radar to come up for another one. Um, and it's important to know that the majority of lung cancers are found in screening are actually found on follow-up scans. So for those of us that have been in lung cancer screening since its inception, we know that in the beginning, there was a lot of confusion around shared decision-making, and things have changed rapidly over the last couple of years. There's a really nice website from the American Thoracic Society and American Lung Association for a lung cancer screening implementation guide. And what it does is it takes those papers that have provided guidance for developing a program and gives concrete information. And so you're not needing to reinvent the wheel. In this particular website, there's a five minute shared discussion making visit between a patient and provider. There's a link to that. In our program, we've actually embedded that into the order. So as you're ordering the scan, if you have questions or you want to review, you can actually hyperlink into that and review those before you have a discussion with the patient. What we are seeing in the literature is that a centralized counseling and shared decision-making visit does improve the patient's knowledge of lung cancer screening. And so as we move forward, regardless of who is doing the shared decision-making visit, it's likely beneficial that it's done in a standard, standardized and centralized approach. Excellent. Very nice, Mrs. Severson. I've learned so much and I've heard that talk before. So you, you educated me once more. All right, let's move to the next talk. Good evening, everybody. I'm Jenny Reisenauer. I'm a thoracic surgeon and interventional pulmonologist at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Today, I'll be focusing on the former side of my hat, which is the surgical workup and evaluation of patients with early lung cancer. So just to talk about the different types of lung cancer surgery, um, which I think is important as you're seeing these patients and counseling these patients and the amount of lung that you're removing um, is contingent upon what their pulmonary function testing shows, which also is contingent upon their functional status as a, as a patient as well. 
And so um, in terms of surgical treatments, we can do what's called a wedge resection, which is just a simple non-anatomic segment of the lung. Um, this is typically done minimally invasively if it's a, and it's typically geared towards more peripheral lesions where you're not taking or dissecting out critical structures. And in our practice here, most of these patients go home within 24 to 48 hours. The next most um, invasive in terms of amount of lung that's resected is a segmentectomy where the anatomic segment of the lung is removed. This is actually probably a slightly higher complication compared to a standard lobectomy because you are creating somewhat of an artificial plane that doesn't exist. So these patients do tend to lend themselves to a slightly higher risk of air leak and a slightly longer stay in the hospital. Um, but you do preserve a significantly more lung function trying to do a segmentectomy. And there's a lot of debate about which patients are good candidates for segmentectomy versus lobectomy, which maybe we can get into if some time allows. Lobectomy is obviously removal of the whole lobe of the lung. Again, can be done open or minimally invasively, generally with a two-night uh, length of stay. A bilobectomy typically only applies typically to the right side because of the because you're either removing the right upper and right middle lobe or the middle and the lower lobe. Otherwise, a pneumonectomy would involve removal of an entire lung. As part of a good cancer operation, a mediastinal lymphonectomy should be done at that time, which removes lymph nodes from the mediastinum. I would argue that anything beyond a wedge resection deserves a good hyalur lymph node dissection as well to truly understand that N1 nodal status. Uh, any and all of these operations can be done open, thoracoscopically, or robotically. The literature would indicate that there is no difference in outcomes between thoracoscopic and robotic, although the adoption rate from open to robotic is seemingly higher as that um, transition appears to be less technically challenging than the transition from open to thoracoscopic surgery. So in terms of assessing a patient for their functional status, again, this will guide how much lung can theoretically be resected during an operation. The most routine, um, least expensive test to start with is pulmonary function testing. And this is kind of the algorithm that most of us follow if the patient has borderline fu pulmonary function testing, which is defined as either an FEV1 or a DLCO that is less than 60%. So when you're calculating the post-operative FEV1 and post-operative DLCO, it's important to take into the account the number of segments that you're actually removing and the number of functional segments that you're actually removing. Because if somebody has a segment that's completely um, taken out from post-obstructive pneumonia or post-obstructive atelectasis, you might have one less functional segment that you're removing um, compared to somebody who does not have that problem. And so when these numbers are given, this is given as a relative um, amount relative to the amount of segments that you're taking. So again, this goes back to having some very detailed discussions with the patient about risks versus benefits. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dr. Eisenhower. I think Thank we you. need to move on. Um, Dr. Rimner. Good evening, everyone. Um, thank you for, to Chest and uh, to Dr. Morgan and Dr. Adele for having me. I'll be talking about um, radiation treatment as the alternative to surgery as the definitive treatment for early stage lung cancer. So what is stereotactic body radiation therapy? It is also known as Sabre, CyberKnife, which is a brand name of one of the radiation machines or stereotactic radio surgery. Those are all um, a lot of acronyms which really refer to the same thing, delivering a high dose per fraction or per treatment, as we, uh, call, the, uh, we call them fractions, in somewhere between one to five treatments. And it is the standard of care for curative treatment for patients that cannot undergo surgery and have early stage non-small cell lung cancer. 
It is a competitive alternative to surgical resection, especially when compared to the sublobar resections or especially the wedge resections um, uh, specifically in patients that are marginally operable. And the reason for that is that there are now multiple prospective clinical trials showing um, local long-term control of more than 90%. Now, there are some advantages uh, to SBRT. It's not invasive. There's no anesthesia involved. There's really no limitation regarding the tumor location. We may have to adjust the radiation dose a little bit based on tumor location, but it's not that we cannot treat them. The toxicity profile is really favorable. Um, Really, generally, it's a little bit of fatigue about a month after and some mild dermatitis, if that. And something that is unique to SBRT is chest wall pain can occur in about uh, 20 to 25%, depending on how close the nodule is to the chest wall and develop within nine months, but even years later, and is usually managed conservatively and usually self-limited. And more than half of our patients don't have any side effects at all, ever, not even fatigue or dermatitis. And my favorite question during follow-up is uh, when patients ask me whether I forgot to switch on the radiation machine because they never felt anything from the radiation. So in conclusion, SBRT is the standard of care for inoperable early stage lung cancer. The local control exceeds 90% severe toxicity and pulmonary toxicity, grade two or higher is in the range of five to 10%. Um, caution needs to be used when we are talking about large ultracentral perihilar masses, and these need to be treated in a little bit uh, more of a protracted regimen of five to 15 treatments. And SBRT is often possible when surgery or regular frequency ablations are contraindicated in extremely frail patients in difficult locations. We can treat them still with adjustment of the fractionation or in large tumors. Spectacular, Dr. Rimner. Thank you again to uh, the outstanding faculty and their presentations. This activity was part of a seven-part series brought to you by the American College of Chest Physicians and supported by an independent educational grant from AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals, an educational grant from Genentech, a member of the Roche Group, and an independent medical education grant from Merck Sharpen Dome Corporation. To receive your free CME credit or to view other activities in this series, go to reachmd.com slash CME. This is CME on ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.